Welcome back to From a Whisper to a Roar, the oral history project conducted by Opening Doors London and supported by Heritage Fund UK. A history tracing the history and development of the modern LGBTQ movement through the voices of the lesbian, bi, and trans women who lived it. Our last episode began in New York and ended in Britain, and it's now the 70s. A decade of bell bottoms, disco, punk, sexual liberation, trade union action, strikes from postal workers, dustmen, and miners, to grave diggers and nurses. Some people didn't even get buried. Tumultuous times. But let's turn our attention back to the women. Meet Lisa Power, a high-profile activist from the early days. Lisa was involved with many organizations that bloomed from the seeds of the Gay Liberation Front. In her own words, Lisa Power is a dyke who's been around for donkey's years. She came out on a demonstration against British home stores for sacking a gay man, and then spent 14 years on Switchboard, and a further 17 at Terence Higgins Trust, ending as the policy director. In between, she helped found Stonewall, was secretary general of the International Lesbian and Gay Association, and was the first openly LGBTQ plus person to speak at the UN in New York in defense of our rights. She has written an oral history on GLF London, No Bath But Plenty of Bubbles, and is currently a trustee of Queer Britain and the chair of the HIV Justice Network. So I knew there'd been this riot. I knew it was in New York. Um, and I knew that it was linked to gay liberation, um, although gay liberation was sort of something impossibly glamorous that happened in bigger cities, by and large. I mean, we got the gay liberation newsletter, but this was 1976. And to be honest, um, as I now know, the gay liberation front was well long, long over by that time, realistically. Mm. Um, and actually, um, things were changing quite rapidly at that point. Um, and there were lots of arguments about lesbian separatism or whether we should still be working with men um, and all of that stuff going on. Um, but as I came to know more about um, gay history, and I'm going, to use, I'm going to use correct terminology, gay for the 70s, lesbian and gay for the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. and then LGBT plus for this century, or queer, mm -hmm. I would now say we would never have said queer back in the 70s. It was just a deathly insult. Um, but now I'm quite happy to use queer again because it's just simpler. Because in the 70s, queer bashing. Well, absolutely. Well, there still is queer bashing. And it's, but it was some people still attempt phrase. to use it as an insult. And for people of my generation, um, we're much more hinky about it than, than young people for whom it's just a fresh new label. Women homosexuals are often known as lesbians, again from the Greek uh, island of Lesbos, where in ancient times the great poetess Sappho and a number of other homosexual women were known to live. I knew that gay liberation was the radical end of things and we were very aware that there was both um, gay liberation and there was the campaign for homosexual equality, which you could tell by the name was massively more respectable mm. um, and actually thought that us tearaways from Lancaster were a bit of a handful. 
because um, we used to wander off to their conferences and be thoroughly unhelpful to them by demanding you know concessions for unemployed people I remember having a row about them. the first pamphlet I ever wrote was about the encroaching dangers of fascism we're talking 1976-77 here mm. um, the era of rock against racism and all that stuff and I was very involved in anti-fascist stuff from um, a gay perspective at that point and indeed you know it's something that's always stayed dear to my heart but for me, the Stonewall riots were a long way away. Um, I was much more concerned with everyday life in Lancaster, trying to set up a, a gay helpline, trying to help people come out. Um, and then I moved down to London and all gay life was here, um, except that there were so many rules. And I was used to a society in which we all clung together because we were very well aware that any of us could be queer bashed. They wouldn't care what sort of queer we were. Mm. You know, we, we would all get it in the neck. Mm. Um, what sort of rules? In London, there, were lots of, there was lots of separatism, which I actually first came across in Bradford, where I'd gone um, for political reasons that I can't really remember much about now. But I was told I, I only knew gay men there who'd moved from Lancaster, but I was told I had to go and stay in a lesbian household because I couldn't stay in a gay men's household because it wasn't right. And I'm like, but you're the people I know. What, what's this about? I found that very confusing. Then I came down to London and not only, um, I mean, I was very clear I was a lesbian and I was a feminist um, and that was that. But I would get a lot of interrogation about what kind of feminist I was. Was I a socialist feminist? Was I a radical feminist? Um, and some other labels, which frankly I've forgotten now, and I would just go, "I'm a feminist," you know. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not going to pick up the rest of those labels. That a lot of our lives, our emotional lives, our desires, and so on, are constructed by a world in which men have the power. Is that a meaningful life for women? Where is the true voice of women? Well, then we have to start asking these critical questions, and out of this, I would say, quite Socratic process will come a, a, a richer and more meaningful life for women. That was the era where a lot of lesbians had walked out of what had started as mixed, or at least theoretically mixed, lesbian and gay organisations. So I applied to join Switchboard in late 1979, and I was only the second lesbian back in after all the women had left to form Lesbian Line with all the women from Icebreakers, which was another similar uh, organisation that was more about social stuff than, than it didn't have a phone line as such. That was a very fractured community it, at that stage, that it, men and women yeah. had gone very much in different directions yeah. in the 70s. And, and I took quite a lot of criticism, well frankly I took quite a lot of criticism all the way through the 80s for being someone who was much more about bringing the community together than pushing us apart. Um, but I was the second lesbian back in at Switchboard and the only other lesbian who was there when I joined um, actually was on record as saying that feminism gave lesbians a bad name. So I actually had more in common with some of the men on there than I did with her. And I've always felt you take your allies where you can get them. Um, I actually started going to Pride shortly after I came out. And I was at, I think it was the 1976 Pride, I'm pretty sure it was, where Tom Robinson was booed off stage in my first Pride and, and there were already people there complaining that it was too commercial because <laughs> Tom Robinson was a sellout because he'd been on top of the pops. Yeah. So he joined 
you know, mainstream, mainstream society, and this was appalling, and he wasn't alternative counterculture anymore. I mean, this is from a group of people who would have died of happiness if David Bowie had turned up and got on the stage, but Pride has always had those rows. Always, always. There's always been somebody who wanted to be purer than everybody else. Um, so that was my first Pride. What was the feel at that Pride for you? Well, it was about a thousand people, and we all ended up in Hyde Park, and it was very exciting for me. I mean, all these lesbians and gay men. Um, and I went off to a couple of other demonstrations with a gay contingent, as it were. I can remember, it must have been an anti-abortion one we were all on, and people going, well, what's it got to do with you lot? Um, and there was also a real problem in those days because any demonstration which was called by the trade unions um, or by the left in general, uh, if gays turned up, we were always sent to the back of the march. Um, we were always, you know, stuck at the end because we were a faint embarrassment to them because we were seen as a fringe issue. Um, I mean, this is an era where you had major leftist parties who were writing that, you know, come the revolution, homosexuality would disappear because it was a bourgeois construct. <laughs> <laughs> and the left were our only friends, and even they weren't that friendly. No, you know, and people not. forget these things now. <laughs> but... Um, so I found Pride very exciting. Um, and I find it quite weird now because people go, oh, it must all have been so terrible. You must have suffered so awfully and it was such a hard time. And I had a whale of a time. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I have coped with some fairly mild, to be honest, queer bashing a couple of times. Um, I've certainly faced a fair bit of prejudice, but it was an awful lot of fun fighting. Um, and I'm one of those people who's happy with a small band of troublemakers. And that's what we were. I mean, Pride was a bit scary with the police could be difficult. And 1980 Pride, I think it was, it was either 79 or the 80 Pride, and I think it might have been 80, um, was a riot. Uh, and people forget that we actually had a riot here at Pride um, because the poli the, there was a group from Brixton called the Brixton Fairies who were very much in the tradition of the radical fairies of um, GLF. Um, and one of them was a guy called Frank. And for some reason, he had a hat with a plastic meat cleaver from Woolies in it. I don't know why. Um, but one policeman went up to him and told him to uh, take the, the cleaver out of the hat because it, if it was in public, you know, it would cause offence. So he put it in his handbag. And a few moments later, another policeman who'd been watching the whole thing came over and arrested him for carrying a concealed weapon. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, that caused a riot, including um, Terry Higgins, after whom the Terence Higgins Trust is mm -hmm. named, who at that point was a leather queen, who was a barman at heaven on top of the more respectable jobs that you always hear about. Um, and the queens got off the heaven float and it was, it was leather queens and drag queens uh, radical drag queens together fighting the police <laughs> and then the lesbians joined in as well we were always up for a ruck or yeah. quite a few of us were I remember in Lancaster where at the Catholic Club Disco um, one night when the Hells Angels got a bit too boisterous and decided to start picking on the gay men they decided to try and fight the gay men it was the lesbians who stepped in and beat the crap out of the Hells Angels frankly Somebody went yeah. down casualty and counted how many lesbians there were and how many Hells Angels, and there were more Hells Angels, so we declared it a win for the lesbians. Absolutely. Proper order. And and our pub sent down a tray of beers for the lesbians in, in the casualty department. 
Um, Did the spirit of separatism start to wane a bit at this point then? Or? No, it actually, if anything, got stronger for a child. I mean, it, it was very difficult because people tried it on almost as a... I mean, I remember the year that all the straight left at Lancaster, the straight left women, all decided that they were radical lesbians. In other words, they were they were sort of theoretical lesbians. Um, and quite a few of them felt they ought to try it out. Um, it drove the straight left men around the bend because they all lost their girlfriends for about six months. Um, and I, I wasn't short of girlfriends for a bit, except that I ended up feeling slightly like a second-class citizen because they were all lesbians for purest political reasons and I was a lesbian for lust. And somehow they managed to make that feel second-class. They were quite the same. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I've spent quite a lot of my life with women telling me how to be a lesbian and how to be a feminist. And I seem to stick it out better than them, even if I am bad at it. <laughs> Don't find job as far as I can see. <laughs> so... So we're in London. Yeah, we're in London. Um, I'm living in short life housing in Islington, which was full of people who were frankly at that point polymorphously perverse. Um, I mean, I shared the house with um, two gay men and a lesbian. The lesbian had a boyfriend and they used to have screaming rows about penetrative sex because she, did, she didn't want it because she was a lesbian, but she was still sleeping with him and it was like... Um, and one of the two gay men eventually went off and got married to a woman. Um, it, you know, we were all pretty pretty much perverse and I was having um, girlfriends and boyfriends while defining as a lesbian at that point. Um, all sorts of stuff was going on. And then in the 80s, all the shutters came down and very strong rules came down. And it was, you're either gay or you're straight, pick a side and stick to it. Um, and suddenly, all of that polymorphous perversity completely disappeared. I think it was a, a much stronger lesbian and gay community. Um, there genuinely was, um, you know, a lot more of us. And I think there was a, a sense that we were building a community. But I think there was also just a whole, because we were facing prejudice and we were embattled, pulling up the drawbridge and saying you're either on our side or you're on theirs. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? not you love somebody to love? You better find somebody to love. And there you have it. The politics and conflicts of mid to late 70s gay London. That concludes the first part of episode two. Stay tuned for part two of episode two, where we'll hear again from Lisa Power, as well as Marguerite McLaughlin, about the 80s experience. You've been listening to From a Whisper to a Roar, the oral history project conducted by Opening Doors London with the support of Heritage Fund UK. You can find out more about the project online at www.whisper2roar.org.uk. The two is actually the number two. Before we love you and leave you, however, a quick recital of the GLF demands of the early 70s, lest we forget our vigilance. Thanks to Lucy Rowland, who sent in a copy from the British Library, and Rachel James, who I semi-forced to read them out with me. Here they are. The Gay Liberation Front demands, November 1970. 
that all discrimination against gay people, male and female, by the law, by employers, and by society at large should end. That all people who feel attracted to member... Uh, that all people who feel attracted to a member of their own sex should know such feelings are good and right. That sex education in schools stop being exclusively heterosexual. That psychiatrists stop treating homosexuality as though it were a problem or a sickness, and thereby giving gay people senseless guilt complexes. <clears throat> that gay people as that gay people be as legally free to contact their own people through newspaper ads on the streets and by any other means they want, as are heterosexuals. Do that one again. Oh yeah. It says Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That people as li- nope. no, <laughs> <laughs> no, gay people. <laughs> that gay people be as legally free to contact any. Oh no. fucking hell! I'm trying, struggling with this one. That gay people be as legally free to contact other gay people through newspaper ads on the streets and by any other means they want, as are heterosexuals, and that police harassment should cease right now. That employers should no longer be allowed to discriminate against anyone on account of their sexual preferences. That the age of consent for gay men be reduced to the same age as for heterosexuals. That gay people are free to kiss and hold hands in public, as are heterosexuals. Gay is good. Good. <laughs> All power to the oppressed people. Okay. <laughs> Got this. You were listening to From a Whisper to a Roar. Thanks very much to Lisa Power and Evelyn Pittman, Opening Doors London, and UK Heritage Fund.